The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Ben Halpern. He is a professor of marine biology and conservation science at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is also the director of the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis. He holds a PhD in ecology, evolution, and marine biology from UC Santa Barbara. He is also the lead author of a recent paper that we'll be discussing today titled The Environmental Footprint of Global Food Production. Welcome, Dr. Halpern. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into this paper, I want to ask you, you are a marine biologist. What is it that turned your attention to global food production? Yeah, it's such a great question. It comes from two places, one personal and one professional. The professional one is, you know, I focus a lot on marine conservation and marine issues, which includes fisheries and aquaculture, but also the many things that affect coastal marine ecosystems. And food production is one of the big ones. So fertilizer runoff from crops create pollution in coastal waters that affects marine conservation. So if you pay attention to the oceans, you really have to pay attention to the planet. And then the personal one is I'm really interested in my own diet choices. And being a scientist, I wanted to try to inform those choices with the best available research and data. And I couldn't find what I needed out there. So I wanted to do my own research to help inform those choices. Well, you know, as a dietitian, I get asked a lot, how should I be eating to help mitigate climate change? And I think, you know, if you go back and look at the IPPC report, this is from the United Nations, and it's probably our biggest body of knowledge about diet and climate. The emphasis seems to be mostly on giving up meat and eating a more plant-based diet. And it's based on greenhouse gas emissions. But in your paper, you looked at four pressures and you estimated a cumulative footprint of food production. So you included greenhouse gas emissions. You also looked at freshwater use, habitat disturbance, and nutrient pollution. How did you arrive at those four parameters? Well, those really are the big ones that people pay attention to. I mean, there are other things like disease transmission or non-native species that are escape from farms or from fields. But those are the big four ones. And the problem is, though, that they're normally addressed in isolation, one at a time. And so you're right, the reports like the IPCC, which are focused on climate change, rightfully so, focus on climate emissions. But there are so many other things that food production does to our planet. So we really wanted to try to get that more comprehensive, holistic understanding of how food production is affecting the environment and therefore ultimately how it affects us. So we look at those four together, and they are the ones for which there are global data available. So there are other ones that people pay attention to, but we often don't have sufficient information or data to look at them at a global scale. So you look at big data. Do you want to explain what big data is? 
Yeah, well, what's so interesting is there's big data and there's small data, and we need both of them to really get at this big picture. So big data is just massive volumes of information that come from things like satellites, where you're getting daily images of where different uses of the landscape are for crops or livestock or urban areas. And you're getting these satellite images every day over and over and over again. And that's big data. And it's big because it's just huge amounts of information. But the small data are all the reports and statistics that are provided to things like the United Nations or the government in the United States for their agencies that report on food production, fertilizer use, the number of head that are raised in any given county, like all that kind of information is invaluable. And it's more small data, but gathering it up and making sense of it all is a big synthesis effort, a big analysis effort. And that's really what we had to tackle in this study is how do you harmonize all this really diverse, disparate information into one common understanding of how food is affecting the planet. And I'm sure when you were compiling this report, you must have wondered, what might you be missing? Yeah. Oh, man. We tried so hard to include everything we could and then keep uh, our eyes open for what we might be missing. And we did pretty good. We got about 99% of all food that is produced and reported. There are things that are not reported. And if not reported, we can't include them because there's no information on them. But things like hunting. So people who go and hunt deer or pig in, in their wilderness near their home isn't included, but is obviously an important source of food or backyard gardens where you grow your own vegetables. No one reports that to anyone. And we don't know how much food comes from that. So those kinds of sources of food, which are obviously important, are not in our assessment, but a lot is. So we really tried hard to gather all that. And then anytime you are pulling information together from all parts of the world, there are some places that report data a little bit better than others. And so we tried to pay attention to where those differences might be and to account for them. But we know that it's an imperfect exercise. Right. One thing that I really enjoyed about the presentation that you gave for Roots of Change, there was a webinar, and I don't know if there'll be a link to that, but I really appreciated the fact that you thought beyond these silos of influence on climate change. And we hear so much about restricting meat and especially red meat, but you brought in this factor of where the meat is produced and there are regional differences. Can you explain a little bit about how we should be thinking about regional differences when we make dietary recommendations? Absolutely. And it's actually one of the main purposes of the study we did, which was to map where these foods are produced and the local environmental pressures associated with them. And this is the first time really anyone has done that, which is why it was a huge endeavor. But it allows us to start asking exactly these kinds of questions. You know, where is different types of food having larger or smaller environmental pressures associated with it? And how can we use that information to make choices about where we source our food, or policy about how we influence trade among countries to reduce the environmental impact of our food choices. And so we get really important differences in every food, actually. Any food you can think of, there are some countries that grow it better and other countries that don't do it as well. And we can dive into those results and start to understand them. So, for example, we have soy, which we grow a lot of in the United States and many other countries do as well, 
And you can compare our soy production to countries like India or Brazil. And we do you know, notably better in the United States, two to three times more efficient in our production of soy because of technology that we have, access to better seed that's more productive, more efficient use of fertilizers that reduces the pollution from that, and policy that guides how we grow soy in the country. For example, you can make those comparisons for cow and pig and chicken. Each one has a story behind it. You can take any country and compare it to another and see who's doing better and who's doing worse. And then as long as we can trace where our food is coming from, we can make choices based on that. I think it's so interesting that you spoke about efficiency. So being that I live in the Midwest where there is a lot of corn and soy production, we always hear this message that, well, we want to have this high technology, these monocultures are more efficient, and yet they're very damaging to the environment with regard to loss of biodiversity. And so I'm wondering how we speak about efficiency. Efficiency is also used when it comes to raising animals in confinement operations, which are extremely damaging to local communities. And then, of course, if you look at the oceans and if all of this nutrient pollution, basically nitrogen, goes down, say, the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico, that's where we see the dead zone. So on the one hand, we've got this argument for efficiency, but on the other hand, we're destroying our planet under this guise of efficiency. Yeah, you've really hit on like a central challenge and issue that I continue to wrestle with as well, because you're right, there's two sides to this efficiency coin. I mean, we gain some benefits from efficiency by concentrating where these pressures occur and reducing the overall pressure from production of a food by being more efficient at it. But as you point out, when you concentrate those pressures, the places that are near them suffer. And so it's actually where our our research is going next is to really better understand where these sort of environmental injustices may occur, who's paying the price more for that concentration of pressure in certain places. One of the things we found in our study, which is really quite shocking to me, I didn't expect it, is that nearly all of the environmental pressure associated with food production, 93% of it, occurs in just 10% of our planet. So we've highly concentrated where these pressures are occurring which you could make the argument is great, we're really making it efficient. Or you could say, wow, the the people that live near that 10% of the planet are paying a dear price for the food production that we are doing for feeding the planet. And I don't have an easy solution by any means. I think that the advantage of concentration in gaining efficiency is that it at least creates a focused area where we can look for solutions that really make a big difference. So if we can really reduce the fertilizer runoff from farms in the Midwest, that can have a profound benefit to the Gulf of Mexico ecosystems. That's not trivial to do that, but at least it helps concentrate where our policy maybe needs to focus. But it's not an easy solution. I, I don't mean to minimize it at all. It's a really important question you've raised and an important challenge we face. And I think that part of it is what the cultural narratives are around the way we produce our food too. And I think your paper helps us broaden our conversation about it. So I'm glad to have this as a tool. I think habitat disturbance is a huge one. You know, if we look at 
what's happening, say, in Brazil or in areas where we depend on forest habitats, the lungs of the planet, for example. And when we see that disturbed for the production of, say, soy, a concentrated area, maybe it's quote unquote efficient. And yet look what we've lost and how that affects the whole planet. Absolutely. I mean, these are major challenges. I think the flip side of that is if we instead did food production to feed the 8 billion people on the planet in a highly distributed way that wasn't concentrated, we will probably disturb even more habitat because it just would take more space to grow the same amount of food. I do not have a simple solution for this at all. I don't know if anyone does, which is why we still face these challenges. But it is, I think some of the solutions maybe connect to things that people don't think about in solving the food problem as much, which is if we can reduce waste, both in the production on the farms and post-consumer waste, we could produce less food and still feed the same number of people really nutritious meals. If we can continue to find technology solutions that improve the production per effort, you know, we can continue to feed the same number of people with less area. And then for people in the developed world where we tend to eat more than we actually need to, to have a healthy diet, if we can just reduce our food consumption a little, that can make a big difference. But in the end, we we do need to feed 8 billion people on the planet, and that has to come from somewhere. So we need to think carefully about how we are doing that food production and where we are doing that food production. Let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Ben Halpern. He is a marine ecologist and conservation scientist with the University of California in Santa Barbara. All right. A couple of factors uh, came up, and one has to do with transportation. So in my circles of sustainable food discussions, there is an emphasis on a re-regionalization of our food system. And I think that the COVID pandemic made this a little bit more clear to many of us in realizing that local food systems did really well during the pandemic, where we had local farmers meeting the needs of their local communities. And where we saw the gaps was when we depended on long distance transport. So a lot of the shelves, for example, in supermarkets were bare, but farmers markets were booming. The other thing about transportation is, of course, the fossil fuel cost of that. And so I think about times when there were, say, big food recalls. So I don't know if you remember when there was a big peanut butter recall. I think it had to do with some salmonella contamination All the peanut butter was produced in one plant in the Southeast, and all of this food recall had to somehow be collected and disposed of. And I kept thinking about the energy that went into the production of it, the plastic packaging, all of those resources that went into all those plastic containers, and then the disposal. So your focus on food waste is really well taken. What do you think about the distribution part of food production and how that impacts our global resilience and sustainability. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting parts to the the stories you told and the question you asked. So part of it is the emissions connected to transportation of food, which you're, you're correct, is certainly part of how food production impacts the environment. The interesting thing is that there are many cases where 
the emissions and environmental pressure of fruit production in a different place where the ecology is just more suited towards that food production means that you can have lower emissions, even though you have to fly the food internationally than if you were to grow it locally. There's a, a story I've heard, I actually don't know the exact details of it, but like sheep farming in New Zealand is so efficient because the sheep can just graze in an environment that's naturally suited to lots of grass growing is better than sheep farming in the United States. And so if we want to get our lamb and mutton from New Zealand, it actually has lower climate emissions than if we were to grow it in the United States. So it's not always quite so simple, but you're right. There are important emissions associated with food production that if you have fewer food miles, you have lower emissions associated with them. The other part of what you raised is the resilience part, which is beyond the scope of what we looked at in this study, but is, of course, fundamentally important. And the pandemic made it abundantly clear how fragile our systems can be if we have these highly concentrated distribution networks. And that's partly connected to food production being industrialized and concentrated. And it's also part of the broader economy of how corporations buy up a lot of small farms and concentrate the food production and they control the distribution of that. And so there are many points in that distribution network that become vulnerable to shocks of the system like a pandemic. You see it in Ukraine with the war. There are other ways that shock our food systems that highlight how a global food system has these vulnerabilities. It has benefits in efficiency and economy. You can get food for cheaper often, but it makes it more vulnerable to these global shocks that happen to systems. So it does lead us towards thinking local food is better. And a lot of that is true. And there's a lot of great reasons to support local food. It's your community, it's your friends, it's your farmers in your town. It isn't always the most environmentally efficient. It can be better, but it is this tension we talked about earlier of when you do things at larger scales, you can gain efficiencies, but you have costs associated with that, but it is more environmentally efficient in general. You know, it's interesting. One of the points you made during the webinar was that you found a new rank order. So, you know, cattle is always at the top of the list when it comes to what are the foods we want to cut back on because they have such a big environmental cost or climate cost. But you said, if I understood you correctly, that pigs actually have a greater impact. Can you That's talk right. about that? And it's connected to two things that are different about our study. And we alluded to it a little bit earlier. One is that we're looking at these four main pressures rather than just one. So when you combine emissions, water use, habitat disturbance, and pollution, rather than just looking at climate emissions, you get a different story. And the second part is we look at production volume, not just per unit. So a lot of the stories or news you've read or people have heard about where cows are the worst climate emitters which is true. They have a lot of emissions from them. They're eight, nine times worse than pig and other food on climate emissions. But that's climate alone, and it's per pound or per kilogram of meat that that comparison is made. We look at the four pressures together and account for the volume of production. And pigs have a lot of nutrient pollution associated with them, a lot. And that, as well as a, a much higher use of water, and the huge volume of production makes pigs slightly worse than cows on a global scale in our assessment, which is you know different than what most people pay attention to. Cows are still second. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges with them, but we do have a different order that comes out of our study than what you typically hear in the news. 
Well, let's talk about cattle for a moment because this gets back to the influence of where we live in the world. And we always lump all red meat together, right? We always say just eat less meat, eat less cattle, eat less beef. But there's a difference between animals that are grazing and animals that are produced in a feedlot. They're fed corn. They're often given antibiotics. They aren't generally healthy animals because of their environment. And then there are parts of the country where grazing is just natural. So you you spoke about, for example, the sheep in New Zealand. But in the prairie areas where there's a lot of grass, there's a lot of rain, it seems that grazing is the natural way these animals were meant to eat and live. So I don't like to see red meat always lumped together. Nutritionally, there's a big difference as well. And if I had a choice, I would always choose meat from a grazing animal. Tell me your thoughts about grazing versus feedlot. Yeah, and it's an important distinction and one that we definitely included in our analysis. And you're right, you know, grazing animals have a much lower impact on the biodiversity and the environment because you have a lot of natural biodiversity, native species that can coexist with grazing animals. A lot of it has to do with density. So you can graze at very high density and then that ends up being damaging to the environment. And you can graze at lower densities and it can coexist with a lot of native biodiversity in, in really good conditions. And then, as you pointed out, there's a lot of parts of the that native grazed ecosystem that aren't really accessible to us for food production because the soil isn't good enough to grow crops or it's just there aren't native species that we can eat there. But livestock can convert that grass into edible meat for us. So it is a way that we can gain food production from landscapes that otherwise may not be great for growing food. And this is critically important in many parts of the world that are undernourished or malnourished, being able to do that. So there are those big differences. You tend to have much lower pollution associated with grazed animals just because of the concentration of manure and other pollutants that come from feedlots. They're not great for the environment, and you have much less of that in grazed landscapes. So the distinction is important. You brought up a really important thing. I still think that grazed meat is higher pressure than many other foods. But if yeah, if you had to make a choice between feedlot meat, the grazed meat is much better. Yeah. You know, the poor people that live in these communities where there are feedlots, the air quality is so poor and the quality of life, I think that needs to be factored in too. I want to get back to the oceans because we know that small fish have less contaminants. They have shorter lives and they have less concentration of toxins that might be in the ocean. So something like sardines I picked up a package of wild planet sardines the other day, and I looked to see where were they caught. They were caught in the North Pacific. It turns out they're caught in Japan. They're processed in Vietnam or Thailand, and then they're sold in the United States. And I'm not just picking on this one particular brand. I think it's a broader conversation. It just has to be the package that I picked up. This particular brand focuses on the sustainability nature of their product, And they rely, of course, on cheaper labor in some of these countries where they're processed. At the end of the day, are we ahead in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, though? Yeah, and this circles back to the distribution of our food and the global markets that our food systems are in. And fisheries are particularly global. They're the most traded food on the planet because they're caught all over and then processed and then traded. And so 
It is an issue. We as consumers drive that. We want the cheapest price for our food and global markets are a key way of doing that. And it gives us access to foods that we wouldn't have if we only shopped locally. So we drive that. It's our choices that drive that. You know, pelagic fish are incredibly healthy and sustainable because of the way they're caught. And they're, like you pointed out, short life cycles so they can reproduce quickly and repopulate pretty quickly. They're pretty well managed in most parts of the world. They're just all over the place. So it's really hard to only eat local sardines, for example. There's parts of the ocean where they're really abundant. And if you want to catch them efficiently, which means reducing the emissions of your boat to go fish for them, you need to go where they're concentrated and then ship them to where people want to eat them. So I actually think it's probably okay. You could definitely make arguments about whether it's ethical or moral to use cheap labor in some country to process the food so that we can have cheap food in our home country. Um, that's a very important but different reason about why we might choose food. But from an environmental perspective, I think it's actually probably still pretty sustainable, even though you have this global market moving food all over the place. Okay, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners any key points that you want to make sure we go away with. Yeah, I mean, it is a lot of information to digest, and it can be difficult to think about on a day to day basis what do you do with all this? And I guess I want to just give people some maybe hope or some direction on what to do with all this information. And I really think. There are two big ways that people can make a difference. And we've talked about choice, what you choose to eat. And there's also the voice you use to try to make change. And so on choices, we talked about decreasing your consumption of a little bit of meat. If you're a meat lover, just cut out a little bit of it. Or if you really want to make a big difference, cut a lot out of it. These decreases in meat can really make a big difference in the planet and increasing things like uh, shellfish consumption, which are oysters and clams and mussels. These are really good for your diet and good for the planet. So your individual choice can make a big difference, especially when multiplied by thousands and thousands of people making those same choices. To solve these problems, we need to have a policy change on how we do food production. And that's where your voice can come in. So really learn a little bit and then talk to your farmers, your grocers, your representatives in government and advocate for changes that make our food system more sustainable for the planet. And that'll then make them healthier for you as a community and a people that are living in and around food production. So there's really important ways we can make big differences, even though we are acting as individuals. I'm going to try to fit in one last question because you mentioned shellfish. And I think when people think about shellfish, we think about things like shrimp. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's I, that's why I qualified what I meant by shellfish, because you're right in the supermarket, shrimp are lumped with shellfish and they're technically a kind of shellfish. But I was thinking of the, the bivalves, the things with really hard shells that, that fold together like clams and oysters. Shrimp, in general, are not very good. They're mostly farmed in ways that are destroying mangrove habitat and other habitat, high pollution, high disease associated with them. But there are wonderful wild-caught shrimp, like here off the west coast of the United States in Oregon and California. There are wild-caught shrimp that are done very sustainably and have very little environmental pressure associated with them. And you can eat them pretty much guilt-free, but you got to know where they're coming from. So most shrimp you find in the supermarket are farmed shrimp, and I would recommend sticking away from those. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Halpern, for helping us think beyond our plate. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ben Halpern, marine ecologist and conservation scientist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I will provide a link to your paper, The Environmental Footprint of Global Food Production. Thank you so much for carving out time for me today. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.